You're listening to audio from Park Church. More info and resources are online at parkchurch.org. Take care. Good morning, Park Church. As Luke said, we are, we are in Matthew chapter 14, uh, verses 1 through 12. Again, that's Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother, and his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. That was one of the hardest pivots in Park Church history. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, you did great, Ben. That was like, but to go from that energy to a dark passage was, should have figured something out. Um, we, we are, my name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here at Park Church. We are uh, working through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we're in our second week of part five. Uh, and so if you don't yet have one of these books, uh, we create these books to help you spend time in God's Word throughout the week. And so we think it's really important to have our gatherings focused on the person of Jesus as revealed in the Holy Scriptures as we try to worship Christ, walk in the Spirit, also paying attention to His Word, submitting to His Word, unpacking His Word. But we also think it's important in your own life to be men and women and children who are in God's Word throughout the week. Uh, just to spend time with Jesus through His Word is a meaningful thing. So we have these books available for you in the back. Uh, we are... we ask for a $5 donation, but if you've been with Park Church for a while, you know our rule. If you don't have enough money for it, what are you allowed to do? Steal it. Steal it. You're allowed to steal it. Uh, that's uh, not like Eighth Commandment steal. Like, you have permission to take it without paying, uh, kind of stealing it. And so, uh, if for whatever reason finances are an obstacle, grab one. We want you to have them. We want this to be something that we can go through, that we're spending time in God's Word together throughout the week. Um, we, like I said, are this week in Matthew uh, 14, and it is a, it's a heavy passage. Now, we believe that the Holy Spirit is present with us right now, uh, that God intends to, through the person of the Spirit, speak through his word, but also speak into your life in particular ways. Uh, when we gather together, when we're in God's word on, the own, on our own time, we're in communities, we believe the Holy Spirit wants to speak to us, to bring encouragement where we need to be encouraged, to bring conviction to areas where we need to be convicted. That just means shining light on areas of our life where we're veering away from God's design and wisdom for our life. Uh, there are things he wants to heal, things he wants to restore, things he wants to reconcile. And so I just want to invite us to take a moment, just open up our heart to the reality that God is with us right now. And God's spirit wants to meet us 
uh, through his word today. So would you join me as we open our heart to the presence of God? Even just encourage you to take a deep breath right now and remind yourself God is here. God, you are here. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would, through your word, through this time together, speak into our heart to bring conviction, encouragement, healing, grace, forgiveness, cleansing, bring repentance, bring restoration to the things that uh, you want to do. And so we want to open up our, up our hearts with anticipation that you would speak to us and work among us with power today. Uh, we are not alone. We are not just going through exercises. You are with us. And so we pray you would work in power and that our hearts would be soft and open to the things you want to do among us. For those who don't yet know you, who maybe feel right now they've come into this space in a time like today because of the things they're facing, God, would you speak to them? Would you awaken them to your love, your presence, and your redeeming grace? And would you reconcile people to yourself? And so pour out your grace among us in beautiful and powerful ways, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, one of the things that I uh, enjoy as a father is as my kids get older, uh, just the ability to start introducing them to movies that I remember and enjoyed at different stages of my life. But it's always a bit of a judgment call on when they are ready for certain movies. So my wife and I don't always have the same opinion about when kids are ready for different movies. And so we kind of like look them up and you look up the ratings and try to like understand it. And so I remember for, for one of my kids, uh, we, it was maybe Shark Week or something. We were talking about shark and, uh, sharks. And I was like, Jaws was a good movie. And, uh, and I was like, let's look it up. And jo it's PG, like movies like Encanto is PG. You know what I mean? Like Jaws was PG. I'm like, it's PG. It's fine. It's like a Disney movie. And... Uh, and, and so I, we, we, like, I remember it's like, you know, I'm sitting down with one of my kids and we're, we're watching this and I'm like kind of explaining, hey, it's a little bit intense and I'm going to prepare you for things. And don't be afraid if you need to close your eyes. This is not a parenting instruction right now, just so you know. This is not like a, a sermon about parenting. It's a sermon about dysfunction and brokenness. Uh, so... So <laughs> we're watching this movie and, you know, there's some intense parts. And then there's this one scene where they're kind of going underwater and exploring a sunken vessel, you know, in the, movie, the music, you know, the iconic dun dun And it's like getting intense. And you're like, expect a shark to come in, but it's not a shark. It's just like a dead guy's head. It just kind of like enters the screen. And, uh, and when that happened, our night was done. I mean, that was... That was <laughs> The end of our evening together, uh, it was, you know, a nightmare inducing, you know, conversation creating among our, uh, my wife and I, you know, it was like a big time parenting fail. And again, for the record, it was PG. So I just like <laughs> false advertising. Um, but we walked in with this expectation, oh, this will be fun. And it, it wasn't, it wasn't fun. It was really, uh, it was deeply disturbing. Um, I, I, I think the same thing happens, like truthfully, in the Bible. Sometimes we come into the Bible and you have this expectation, this is going to be pleasant. I'm going to get some nuggets of wisdom that are going to help me live my life. I'm going to read some inspiring stories that are going to kind of start my day off with like a real kind of sense of excitement and meaning, and it's going to be a really sweet time. And then you start reading the Bible, and it's not long before you kind of come in contact with some really disturbing scenes. Right, like right out of the get-go, a few pages in, you're kind of, there's this sibling rivalry that goes bad. One son murders the other son and then is eternally banished, him and his offspring. You're like, ugh, you know, this is dark. You get to the flood story and, you know, we put this in children's books and we uh, sometimes like use the images 
certain images from the flood story to paint on preschool walls, you know, the boat and the animals and water, but not like what's under the water, which <laughs> is disturbing, right? I mean, like it's, um, it's like dark stuff. As you're reading through the Bible, one of the things uh, my kids do uh, in the morning, most mornings they'll like do some audio Bible in the morning and just kind of like make their way through, which is just like fun because they'll come and they'll ask my wife or I questions about, hey, what's going on with this? And this is kind of weird or confusing. And it's encouraging because it means they're paying attention. And I love that they're paying attention uh, until they get to places like Deuteronomy 25, which happened recently. And, uh, and my older two kids came up to me with like a sense of like confusion and amusement and uh, asked me a question about this verse. It was, if two Israelite men get into a fight and the wife of one tries to rescue the husband by grabbing the testicles of the other man, you must cut that hand off. Show her no pity. So that was an interesting conversation. You know, they're like, um, they're like, Dad, this is kind of funny, but in what universe did this need to be a law? You know, like... Uh, and so they're processing, we're like, well, ancient culture is a little different. We're talking about it. And, and my uh, younger son was just quiet and just kind of listening and uh, wasn't really engaging. And then, like, apparently, like, just kind of accepting the plausibility of this situation, asked, what happens if she grabs him with both hands? <laughs> I'm like, that's a very fair question. Um, it's not clear. It doesn't say. Uh, I guess they needed another law. Those are the questions that made these laws a thing, you know? Uh, what, hey, some kid like, Dad, what happens if? He's like, oh, I was actually writing Deuteronomy. I'll put that in there, you know? Um, it's like, these are things, but it's like, it's weird, right? And you just, if you start reading through the Bible, if you're making your way through, it's, it's not so much you think it's going to be some PG-inspiring story for your kids. There's disturbing stuff. I'm not excited to, like, talk with my kids through the book of Judges. It's dark. I mean, there's corruption there are perversions of justice that are abusive. There's so much misconduct. It's dark. You read through the Bible, and these, even these kind of cute hero stories that we tell kids about King David, you know, like trusting in God and slaying Goliath, we tell the story right up to the part where David takes Goliath's sword, severs his head, and like drags the bloody head with him back to Jerusalem. Like, like just dark, heavy things. You get to the prophets, and the prophets are using some really graphic and upsetting imagery to describe the reality of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. The Bible's not PG. The New Testament's not PG. We start making our way through Matthew, and there are, there are beautiful stories about healing and forgiveness and grace and, and teaching that's helpful and powerful and brings wisdom to life. But then there are dark stories. Within the first couple pages of Matthew, there's a really dark story uh, about a king killing all of these children uh, in Bethlehem. And we get to a story like this one today, and it's, it's heavy, it's, it's intense. Matthew describes aspects of injustice and brokenness that bring real pain to people. In fact, Matthew is familiar with John the Baptist, and a lot of the close friends of Matthew and the early Christians are reading a story about a very brutal and unjust and kind of really sordid kind of like experience that led to the death of somebody they cared a lot about. And, and you kind of come up next to it, and it's not pleasant. It's, it's really disturbing. And as a church, we're just committed to, to reading and preaching and working through the whole Bible, including the unpleasant parts. Uh, we don't want to be a community that kind of like glosses over the darkness. We don't want to be a community that edits out the kind of socially or culturally unacceptable parts. We don't want to pick and choose only the passages that are inspiring and uplifting. We want to preach the whole Bible, and the Bible's not PG. 
It's not PG. This passage is not PG. Um, This passage is dark, and Matthew puts it here for a reason. Why? That's what we have to sort through. Why? Why would this passage with injustice and corruption and death and sexual brokenness and uh, uh, unjust murders and family drama, uh, why would Matthew include this story here? That's what we want to look at. So I want you to keep your Bible open. We're going to pay attention to some hard things because it's here for us. It's here for us to learn and pay attention to. And what I hope we see is the reality of brokenness in the world and how it impacts people, brokenness that impacts us and has impacted you, brokenness that impacts our neighbors, but also brokenness that we contribute to because of the sin and the the darkness within us. So we're going to pay attention to the brokenness of this world, but also we're going to look at God's heart for the world as he considers that brokenness and what he's done to intervene in human history to redeem and restore what has been broken. And so we're in Matthew chapter 14. We're going to start in verse 1. Uh, We're going to get a little bit of a flashback. So I'm going to kind of walk through the story, try to paint some of the details, fill in the cracks, and help you kind of get your mind and your heart around what's happening here. And so Matthew 14, 1 says this. It says, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Uh, Herod the Tetrarch, a Tetrarch is like a local ruler that rules under the authority of the Roman Empire. They're kind of like puppet rulers in different provinces and regions around the Roman Empire. Herod, this guy's name is Antipas. Herod Antipas is the Tetrarch over the region of Galilee where Jesus was doing a lot of his early ministry. And so Herod hears about the fame of Jesus and these powers of Jesus, and it reminds him of John the Baptist, who apparently is dead. But we haven't read about the death of John the Baptist. In fact, the last thing we read about John the Baptist was several chapters back. We learned that John the Baptist, who is a really important figure, kind of laying the foundation for the Jesus movement, laying a foundation, preparing the way, kind of stirring up the hearts of people, calling people to return to God and repent and turn away from their sin to prepare their hearts for the coming Messiah. We heard heard that he was put in prison prison, but we hadn't heard that he had died. And so as soon as Matthew recounts a story about Herod saying, oh, maybe this Jesus is John the Baptist back from the dead, it's like, okay, I need to fill in some gaps. I need to tell you what happened to John the Baptist. And that's what this passage is. It's a flashback to tell you what happened to John the Baptist, how this prophetic leader of God's people had met a really brutal and dark end. Another thing that this passage is doing is reminding us that as Jesus is doing these miraculous works and bringing restoration and healing, it's not just that people didn't like him. There were authorities and rulers that were threatened by this growing kingdom movement that saw Jesus as a threat to their power, and they loom over the whole story of Jesus as a dark cloud, preparing us for where the whole story ends, which is ultimately the unjust arrest, indictment, and crucifixion of Jesus. And so in this passage, we're going to get kind of a flashback, and Matthew's going to tell us what happened to John the Baptist. Matthew, again, has been tracing the narrative arc of the life of Jesus, and so he's going to kind of bring us back into something that that happened, and he paints the scene. And so uh, look with me at verse 3. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Uh, We're going to pause there and just kind of bring you into this. We actually knew about that from earlier in Matthew. We knew that Herod, we knew that John the Baptist was in prison. 
Um, Herod Antipas, his name's, I'm going to refer to him as Antipas. He also called himself Herod, and that's after his father. And so if you're familiar with the story of Matthew, if you've been with us since the beginning for the past 20 years that we've been in Matthew, uh, if you're with us in chapter 2, there was a Herod in chapter 2. He was Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the king of all of Israel. He had a kind of still under the authority of the Roman Empire, uh, but had a broader kingdom. And he was an egomaniac. He was obsessed with power. He was obsessed with his own kingdom. And anything that posed a threat to his kingdom or anything that attacked or wounded his ego, he would lash out against. And so there are stories from early historians about the kind of power of his kind of like the kind of aggressiveness of any of his kind of like actions toward anybody that threatened his power. One of those stories makes it up, makes it into the Bible in chapter two, where again, Herod hears that there's a child that's been born that's supposed to be king of the Jews. And Herod's like, no, 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 I'm king of the Jews. And so to make sure that this child won't be a threat to his power, he orders the execution and the murder of a bunch of innocent young boys in and around Bethlehem. It's a really dark, painful scene. A scene that's immediately like followed by kind of scriptural like reminder of the grief of God over the brokenness in the world. That Herod has a lot of stories of brokenness. When he eventually died, he handed his kingdom off. It was kind of divided among three of his sons. Uh, the sons were Antipas, who ruled around Galilee. I'm gonna, you're gonna track with me, put on your history hat, your geography hat. Here we go. Antipas ruled around Galilee. His brother Archelaus ruled kind of in the southern area in Judea, Samaria, Jerusalem region. And then Philip, another brother, ruled kind of northeast of Galilee. And these brothers weren't like happy about this arrangement. They were all like their father, obsessed with power. And they began fighting and clashing, fighting against each other, kind of arguing over boundaries. They also were obsessed with women and sexual exploits. And there are stories of this, again, that also existed among their father, that existed in them. So Philip married a woman named Herodias. Uh, here, Antipas, the one we're reading about here, married another person who's like the princess of Nepotia, which is another kingdom, as an attempt to expand his borders. Arch uh, Archelaus also had a wife. And then in their kind of like existence, they would also take trips to Rome to kind of report to the emperor and participate in different things for different tetrarchs. And on one of these trips, Antipas, who we're going to read about, and his wife, and Philip and his wife Herodias and Archelaus and his wife all made their way to Rome. And something happened on that trip where this person, Antipas, and his brother Philip's wife Herodias entered into an affair. And they began having an affair. And what Herod Antipas decides is he says, I don't want to be married to my wife anymore. He actually divorces her, which created a lot of tension with that kingdom. And then he marries Herodias. Herodias divorces her brother or her husband and marries her husband's brother. So this person who used to be Antipas's sister-in-law is now his wife. Philip and Herodias also had a daughter. We learned from ch church history that her name is Salome. And Salome comes with her mom to now enter into this family where the person who used to be her uncle is now her stepdad. These figures are the main figures in this next scene. Herod Antipas, his former, his former sister-in-law, now wife, Herodias, his former niece, now stepdaughter, Salome. These are the figures that are going to be at play in this next scene. It's dark. It's, it's, it's a dark, dark and corrupt scene. The early readers would have been aware of that drama. In fact, John the Baptist was very aware of that drama. 
The issue for John was that Herod Antipas, who had taken his father's name in an attempt to kind of like follow his father's footsteps to build this kingdom, was claiming to be the king of the Jews. And John the Baptist was like, no, 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 no. You are not king of the Jews. John entered into a long history of prophets who confronted the kind of posing leaders of Israel, who kind of, as these, pro- as these leaders would come into power and they'd use their power in corrupt ways and compromising with foreign powers and use it to kind of establish their own mini-kingdom, the prophets throughout history would confront those kings and rulers of Israel, and John the Baptist, as one in the long line of prophets, joined in that kind of mission and confronted again and again and again Herod Antipas for the ungodliness, the wickedness, the unrighteousness of his actions, and publicly would denounce this Herod as a false king who had no right to be reigning over or claiming any leadership over the people of Israel, because John was preparing the way for a different kind of king. Now, Herod also loved the kind of affection of the people. So the people that he was leading, he wanted them to like him. He would often try to find ways to please them and gain their approval. He also really needed the kind of the emperor of Rome to like him. And what that meant is maintaining stability, right? Think about Pax Romana, if you remember history class. The peace of Rome was really important. And so if you had instability in your little kind of region, it meant that you're going to get in trouble with the emperor and you're going to get in trouble with the Roman Empire. And so so Herod had this motivation to maintain peace and the people of Israel loved John the Baptist. And so though Herod felt personally confronted by John the Baptist, though Herodias, his wife, felt deeply offended by John the Baptist, Herod didn't want to kill him because it would have created an uprising among the people and that's not going to reflect well in his character. So that's the scene. And so instead of killing him, Herod arrests him, puts him in prison. But for Herodias, that's not enough. Herodias is less concerned with the political ramifications. She's less concerned about Herod's reputation to Rome or how much people like Herod. She feels personally confronted and attacked in a way that was embarrassing to her and frustrating to her. And she had a kind of a hatred in her heart for John the Baptist. And in this moment, in this scene, she seizes an opportunity to put this man to an end. Pick with me up, and we're going to read in verse uh, 4. See, John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people. Herod feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, so I think a local, like mini king's birthday, a group of rulers, a group of leaders from all over the region would come together. It would be exclusively men at this party. And, uh, and it would be an incredible amount of alcohol. And women would be at this party, not for kind of like conversation, but for dances, erotic dances, sensual dances like this. This is a part of the brokenness of their culture. It's a part of what's happening in this space. It says this, when Herod's birthday party came, the daughter of Herodias, his former niece, now stepdaughter, is who we're talking about, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod. Uh, when it says, please, Herod, Mark goes into a little more detail. You don't, like, Matthew is not painting in the gaps, but he's assuming everybody is filling in the gaps. This is an erotic and sensual dance. It is dark. It's not like somebody, uh, even the darkness of, like, the, the whole system is exacerbated by the reality that this is his stepdaughter, niece. His, his wife, Herodias, has also, like, is comfortable with this arrangement. It is really incredibly broken. And so in the drunkenness of this debauched festival, this debauched birthday, in the midst of the kind of mayhem of what's happening in this place, it says he promised with an oath to give her 
whatever she might ask. And so prompted by her mother, she says, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And so as Herod is in the middle of this, again, really broken, broken moment, he's kind of in this drunken, debauched, like sexually aroused space. And he says to her, I'll give you anything you want. She leaves, she goes and talks to her mom who's there nearby. And she says, get me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. This is our chance to end him. And so the daughter of Herodias goes back to her stepfather, uncle, and says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now Herod's in a position where he's like gonna either kind of break his word in front of all of these friends and colleagues and other rulers and lie to and break his word to this woman, or he's going to follow through with his promise and do something that he knows is going to cause a lot of drama for his little mini kingdom and is going to cause kind of disfavor from the people, but also disruption and kind of mess with his reputation before Rome. But in the moment, because of the fear of disappointing the people, he follows through in this unjust act and he orders his executioner to go sever the head of John the Baptist. He does it. He brings it back on a platter, and he brings it there, gives it to his stepdaughter, who then brings it to her mother, Herodias. And that's the end of John the Baptist, who Jesus called the greatest man born among women that the world has ever known. This John the Baptist who had been there when Mary was pregnant with Jesus, who leaped inside his mother's womb. This John the Baptist who had gone before Jesus, kind of in the midst of receiving disdain from the people, preaching a, a message of repentance. The king of the world is coming. Prepare the way. And He had been faithful. He was there at the baptism of Jesus. He baptized Jesus. He's the one that said, behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Many of his own followers, when they kind of were confronted with Jesus, John says, go follow him. I came to prepare the way for him. I'm not even worthy to like stoop down and, and tie his sandal. I'm not worthy. He is greater than me. I'm going to fade back as Jesus fades up. This John the Baptist who had prepared the way for the Messiah as this massive, massive figure reaches his end in such a moment of corruption and darkness and pain. And for some reason, Matthew wants us to see the bigger picture, the darkness of it all. Matthew could have just said, and when John the Baptist died, Jesus went away to grieve. But he doesn't. He like paints a dark picture, bringing people into the reality of the brokenness of the world that they were living in. So what does that mean for us? What do we take away from that? I want to draw attention to just a few things that I think are important for us to be honest about. They don't feel like rocket science. They don't feel like really complicated realities. But to be honest about these realities, number one, the world is deeply broken. Uh, the world is deeply broken. Uh, kind of underneath all of these kind of debauched, unjust, evil, corrupt actions of Herod and the family of Herod, there is a brokenness in the way they're approaching life. And so as we think about how do you, how do you kind of categorize and think about ways to describe the reality of human brokenness, all of human brokenness often is taking good things that God has given us and finding ways to bend them, distort them, and corrupt them because of human sin. And so times I think about four categories that are in us as human beings. As human beings, there is a desire for power, like power is a part of the human experience. There's a desire for approval, of people and acceptance by people, love. Uh, there's a desire for pleasure and for comfort and the desire for honor and glory. These things inherently are not evil, 
But inside of sin and because of sin, we corrupt these things and bring brokenness into our own life, our own soul, and the lives of others. So think about those categories again. If you think about the first one, this idea of power. Herod was obsessed with power, always trying to expand the borders of his kingdom, always trying to kind of maintain a kind of like kingdom where he had at the top, like anything that threatened his own kingdom or challenged his own kingdom felt like a threat to his identity. And he used his power not to protect and to serve and to sacrificially lay down his life for others. He used his power to domineer, to manipulate and control others. So in the kingdom of humanity, in our broken world, we see power as a way to lift ourselves up against others, to use our power to protect ourselves at the expense of others. Power in God's kingdom is different. Power in God's kingdom is not inherently wrong. It's to be used, as Jesus used his power, to sacrificially lay down his life and serve others. That's what power is given for. Your strengths, your weaknesses, your leadership is given by God to sacrificially lay down your life for the good of others. Herod had bent that in a way that was corrupt and brought brokenness into the world. You think about acceptance and approval and love. In in God's world, we're designed to be human beings that are secure in the covenant love of God. But as those who have pushed away from him and those who are not reconciled to God, that don't know the love of God, they're desperately striving and searching for approval and for love and for acceptance and feel like committed to doing whatever it takes to get people to like them, whether that's the people of Israel wanting Herod wanting them to like him or the people at this debauched party where he follows into actions and different things that compromise his integrity, compromise his righteousness and distort the character of God by doing what needs to be done just to get people to like him. And we do the same kinds of things. We compromise our integrity. We distort who we are made to be. We distort who God's designed us to be. We violate things. We turn away from God's wisdom and God's righteousness to get people to like us. We feel constantly insecure going into friendships and relationships, kind of desperate for people to approve of us and to like us and to love us. And so even when we do like meaningful acts of service, When we do kind things, often it's not primarily to love and serve other people. It's to get something from those people. It's to get them to like and serve us. Whereas in God's kingdom, you're designed to be so secure in the love of the God who made you. That he designed you. He made you. He loved you in creating you. And he loved you in redeeming you. And you're so secure in that love that you can go into relationships not needing other people to love you, but ready to love and serve them, whether they love and serve you in return or not. And then you're able to be in relationships with other people that don't always love you the way you want to be loved because you're not needing them to do that. That's not the contingency factor in your relationship with them. You're actually free in the love of God to love and serve other people. Herod was so committed to the approval of these, all these people that it led him into really dark spaces. Or you take the desire for comfort and pleasure, which God has given us the faculties to enjoy life, to enjoy creation, to enjoy food and drink and sexuality and friendship and experiences. It's good. He creates the world. and He says, it's really good. I, I created this world and I want you to enjoy the goodness of the world as things that help you taste and see my goodness, the goodness of the creator. But we push away from the creator, we take the gifts of the creator and we make them the main thing and we find ourselves chasing pleasure after pleasure, whether that's through things like sexual brokenness or substance abuse or experience after experience or just kind of mind-numbing things that just make us feel good and that hit of dopamine little by little, just a little more, a little more and it's never enough and you run and you run and you run and always want more and you're never satisfied. Whereas in God's kingdom, you learn God's presence brings pleasure and joy. The love of God brings an experience that you can be so secure in the presence of God and in his promise that he will restore everything that's been broken, that you can live in a world where you enjoy the good gifts of God, as things that fuel your worship, 
But you can also endure the loss of those things or when those things aren't given to you or when you see other people having those because it reminds you that the gifts themselves are not the giver. The things themselves that are created are not the creator. These little tastes of joy aren't the source of joy. And it reminds you again to hope in God, his presence and his kingdom. This is what we are made for. Or you take glory and honor. Like you want to be liked. You want to know that the things you're doing matter. And you want there to be a world where people are honored for the goodness that they bring into the world. The desire to be honored for the goodness that you bring into the world is not inherently wrong. The desire to push God and say, as a created being, my kind of desire to kind of elevate myself over others, to be seen as great, to kind of take the place of God, is a part of the core sin in the Garden of Eden with even Satan himself seeking the glory of God and pushing God out of the picture. And so when we live our life chasing glory and influence and status and honor little by little, it is never enough. It ends up crushing other people. In God's kingdom, it's supposed to be different. In God's kingdom, you're supposed to find dignity and value in being a son or a daughter of God, to be loved by him and to be given this beautiful vocation to participate in the building of his kingdom according to your gifts, but to seek to honor other people and to love and appreciate the goodness of other people, to esteem other people as more significant than yourself, to look at them and see the goodness of God in them and lift them up. And when people lift you up, to feel encouraged by that, but to remember not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name and be glory. Because everything that we've been given that brings goodness into the world has come from him, is working through him, and is ultimately for him. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. And so you're free to live in this life when you feel slighted or knocked down or you feel misunderstood to actually receive those things because the glory is not about our individual glory. These are the things that we're made to experience. And the reality is the broken realities in all of those arenas so pervade and permeate our experiences as humans that it's hard to even it's hard to even like discern the goodness of those gifts. Like you hear any of these things, the pursuit of pleasure or sexuality, and it has this stain over it. Power has this stain over it. Like desiring acceptance has this stain over it. The desire for glory has this stain, because we can almost, it's almost hard to even understand that there's something good in there that has been so severely distorted and corrupted by human sin. And so this story brings it all together in this like compact moment where you just like feel all of it at play in this one thing that ultimately ends to end in the destruction of John the Baptist in this really painful way. And the reality is those broken things in this world have brought pain into your life and the lives of our neighbors and our friends around the city and around the world in ways that make our stomach turn. Like we can talk about it abstractly, but when you start thinking about where have I felt that? Where have I experienced that? It's not hard for many people in this room immediately things come to mind. Brokenness in your own family, brokenness in our city, injustices that permeate the human experience, both at a global level and a local level. You feel it all around us, and we start paying attention, it's overwhelming. But it makes the story of Herod and Herodias, this whole kind of thing that seems really dark, not that foreign, not that foreign. You bring it into our own families and the pain that people have experienced with fathers and mothers, the pain that people experience in the workplace as we all operate in these broken ways, taking these God-given desires and distorting them because of human sin. And so you look at the life of a guy like Herod and you can, like, you can look, you can trace up his family tree and you'd be like, oh, he's merely a reflection and kind of like perpetuating the brokenness of his father. Well, you could probably do the same thing, like your own issues of brokenness and sin, which are yours and they're ours. And we can like look up and you can see like, oh, I can see how my family shaped this. And you can work back generation. We can do that. And you can look at the contours of the brokenness within each of us. And sometimes that's really meaningful work to do. But you keep going up that family tree and where do you find yourself? You find yourself back to the beginning. 
You find yourself back to this original sin where humanity turned against the presence of God, took the good things of God and his design for us. We turned away from him and said, we're going to figure this out on our own. And that biblical reality, that historical reality that we call sin runs deep within our bones, all of us, all of us. And it causes pain in the world that you've experienced, but it's also pain that we bring to the world. Like there is something of Herod in this family within all of us. And it's easy to kind of push it aside and say, that's gross and dark, and it is, and it should be. But when you start saying, where do I look for approval and live and feast off the approval and acceptance of others? Where do I distort power in ways that are destructive to others? Where do I feel hungry to be seen and respected and valued and experience glory? Where do I chase pleasure after pleasure after pleasure in ways that are not the way God has designed? When I ask those questions, we can probably think about stuff in all those categories that are contribution. So you look at the pain, and the pain is real. You start asking in a passage like this, where is Jesus? Where is he? Because he's not in this passage. It's a little aside about something that happened a ways ago that is just now in this passage making its way to the ears of Jesus. And what happens when it makes its way to Jesus? Look at this in verse 12. It says, his disciples came of John, and they took the body, and they buried it. And then they went and told Jesus. That's where we pick back up in line with the narrative. So Jesus now is hearing this news about the death of his cousin. Jesus is hearing this news about the death of his coworker. The disciples that are following Jesus are hearing the news about the death of their friend, somebody who had been a mentor to many of the first followers of Jesus, like John and Andrew. Uh, they're hearing this news, and it is going to be heartbreaking. And so look at verse 13. And you're like, I thought we were stopping in verse 12. We're stealing two verses from the next passage to make sense of what's happening here. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Jesus hears this, and the passage is going to be clear. You're going to pick it back up. There's going to be an interruption to his pursuit of space. He uses three words here, Matthew does, to talk about Jesus hearing the news. He's withdrawing to a desolate place to be by himself. The focus is like, get alone, get away from people. Jesus needs to grieve. He needs to grieve. He's a human who is heartbroken. You see it in other places where when close friends of Jesus die, he weeps over the brokenness of the world, which is what I want us to see. Not just that the world is broken, but that Jesus grieves the brokenness in the world. He grieves it. When he thinks about the things that have happened to you or the damage that we ourselves cause, it breaks his heart. The word that's going to show up in a second, this word compassion, is a word about just like a, like a gut-wrenching, like inner life-severing, feeling that Jesus had, like it makes him want to throw up when he thinks about the pain and the darkness of this world, that he was there in the beginning, one with the Father and the creation of the heavens and the earth, and to see it all gone awry, to see it so broken, and see that darkness and that dysfunction affecting people and hurting people that he created in his image. It breaks his heart. He grieves. He grieves, and he seeks to get alone. Now, he's going to be interrupted in that. We're going to come back to that in a second. He's going to be interrupted in that, but he's going to pick back up after like a short little thing about feeding 5,000 people, you know, and healing a lot of diseases. You pick back up right after that. In verse 22, it says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. Jesus finally has space to be alone with his father and to feel and to grieve and to process this devastating news. Uh, we as human beings are designed to grieve the brokenness. When you think about the things that have happened to you or the brokenness around you in the world or things that have happened to people you care about, it should, it should mess you up inside. 
It should bring anger and sadness, fear and frustration. It should bring these human emotions that God designed us to have. God himself has emotions, and our emotional capacity is a reflection of the image of God. Jesus grieves the brokenness in the world. We're not supposed to let the kind of like truth of God's sovereignty, which is true and gives hope, we'll come back to that, nor are we supposed to let the reality that God will redeem and restore what's been broken suppress the reality of our human emotions, the goodness of feeling those emotions, the appropriateness of feeling them, the goodness of expressing those emotions with honesty to God, to one another, even to ourselves is hard to be honest about. I actually feel really frustrated by that. I feel really sad about that. I'm brokenhearted about that. To feel those things, to be honest about those, to express those is human, it's healthy, it's right. God himself does. In fact, there are scriptures, so many psalms and a whole book called Lamentations that are teaching us how to feel honest feelings, express those feelings honestly before God, and then surrender and trust to the God who is with us, the God who sees, the God who cares. Feel them, express them, and then surrender and trust to the God who sees, the God who's here, and the God who cares. We've got to grieve these things, honestly, Jesus did. But Jesus doesn't merely grieve. He also moves forward with compassion towards action. Look with me at verse 13. It says, but when the crowds heard it, when they heard that Jesus was going around to the other side, they followed him on foot from the, ta- from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw the great crowds and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. It's like Jesus is like, here's this news, is heartbroken, needs space, wants to get away to be by himself, gets in a boat to go off the other side. People see Jesus on a boat, Sea of Galilee's decently large, but not so large that they couldn't run and kind of meet him. And they're like standing there on the other side when he gets off the boat, when he disembarks, they're like, we're still here and, uh, and we need you. And we need you, we're hurting. And Jesus sees them, look at the passage, sees them, he feels compassion for them, and he heals them. He sees you, he feels compassion for you, and he's moved towards us to bring healing into our life, to restore what's been broken. When you think about the pain you've felt, he sees you, he feels compassion for you, and he moves towards you to bring healing and restoration into your life. And he brings healing into these people in this community. But in this passage, one of the reasons, I think, why Matthew includes the whole story of John the Baptist in this passage is because the passage also, again, prefigures and kind of prepares us for where the whole story of Jesus is headed. See, just like John the Baptist was confronting Herod for his injustice and was a threat to Herod's power and kingdom, so Jesus was proclaiming a gospel of repentance and teaching people in ways that were a threat to the powers that be throughout the land of Israel. Just like John the Baptist was arrested by those who had power to keep him quiet and to remove him as a threat, so Jesus was arrested by those who had power to remove him as a threat to their kingdom. Just like Jesus was ultimate, or just like John the Baptist was ultimately condemned to death and executed because of a weak king who cared more about the approval of others than about doing what's right, so Jesus, under the leadership of Pontius Pilate, would be condemned to execution, crucifixion, because Pilate, though knowing Jesus was innocent, would listen to and bow to the will of the people who yelled out, crucify him, crucify him, and so he did. The story of John very much prefigures and prepares us for where the whole story of Jesus is going, and Matthew wants us to remember that while Jesus is healing, while he's meeting people, he's ultimately come to redeem us and to heal us and restore us from a deeper brokenness that creates a root problem that we cannot free ourselves from. 
that we can't rescue ourselves from. We need a redeemer. We need one who would enter into human history, not merely to show us love and kindness, not merely to bring healing to physical diseases and to bring forgiveness to people, but actually to restore and to remove the fundamental issue that's brought brokenness into all of human society, and that's the reality of our rebellion against God, human sin. And so Jesus, when he's suffering under the hands of the religious leaders of the first century, when he's ultimately condemned under the hands of the Roman leaders of the first century, and when he's hanging on a cross, he is not feeling primarily like a victim of injustice, though he was. He is laying his life down actively to atone for the sin of the world, to pay the penalty for our sin because of our rebellion against God so that you and me and anyone who would turn to him could be forgiven, could be washed, and could be cleansed, and could be reconciled to the presence of God through the work of Jesus Christ. This is the good news of the kingdom, that the king has come not just to show us a different way to be human, but to rescue us from the fundamental issue that has brought in all the brokenness into this world and into our lives. This is the Jesus we worship day in and day out. And just like Herod thought about the, the kind of news about Jesus and thought, maybe this is John the Baptist risen from the dead. It wasn't John the Baptist risen from the dead. John the Baptist was still dead and buried. The disciples had buried him. He's still buried. But it begins to anticipate what this would mean for Jesus, that Jesus did not stay dead. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He, he came and appeared before his people, began to teach them about the kingdom of God as a place where sins can be forgiven, guilt can be washed, brokenness can be atoned for, and where human beings can be reconciled to God, filled with the Spirit, and can begin to learn to live like humans were designed to live, secure in the love of a father, filled with the presence of God, learning to use power to love and serve, learning to be secure in God's love so we can freely give ourselves in love to others, learning to actually trust that the future kingdom that's coming is a place where there will be pleasure forevermore and being able to enjoy the gifts of God as just gifts that he may give and he may take away, but we can trust him in those spaces and learning ultimately that when all is said and done, it will be clear that glory belongs to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who's seated on the throne, who's working in ways to redeem and restore everything that's been broken. This is the good news of the kingdom, and this broken passage right here in the middle of Matthew reminds us of how much we need not just a good teacher, not just a kind of kind person, not just somebody to give us kind of some prophetic advice, but somebody who would come and take away the sin of the world. That's what John called him. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's take a second and pray and prepare our hearts to let him speak to us this morning. Jesus, we uh, right now ask for your grace on this moment. Uh, you came not merely to atone for our sin, but to free us from the power of sin. Not merely to forgive us of the ways we've turned from you, but to heal, to transform, to change us. And so right now, I ask that you, through the power of your spirit, would speak into our lives around this room. Now, there are men and women and children in the room who probably feel a lot of pain because of brokenness that they've experienced in the sin of others. Would you draw near to them right now, that you see them, you love them, you have compassion for them. Would you draw near to bring healing and hope to them? And then for all of us, there are areas where we've contributed to the brokenness in this world. And would you convict us where there are areas where we're chasing the approval of people and have turned away from you, stopped pursuing you because we're so committed to making people happy. We're so committed to 
making people like us, that we've compromised who you've designed us to be and the life you've called us to live. I imagine there are some of us in the room who have been chasing pleasures in ways that we know are inconsistent with your design, your wisdom, your word, and running and finding ourselves dissatisfied again and again, would you convict? Would you arrest us in our plight and bring us back to reconciliation with you? Would you bring us back to the joy that you give, the love that you give? Where there are things in our life where we've turned from your wisdom and turned from your goodness, would you right now convict us and would you shine a light into our heart, not to condemn, but to cleanse, to forgive, to redeem, and to transform. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.